0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and part two of the true story of the Bielski brothers. Our subtitle today, Hard Choices. This is your host and teller of history, John Hagedorn, and as we enter part two, the forest camp is growing with new refugees. Young Aaron has become confident that he could enter most ghettos and holding areas and come out alive, often with Jews who have decided that living in the woods is a lot better than dying in a concentration camp. By the spring of 1942, the brothers have set up camp in the forest outside of their home in Stankovich. They've received guns from the Russian partisan leader, Gromov, and now they can not only provide protection for the women and elderly, they can plan raids for more weapons, food, and supplies. Tuvia, Assail, and Zeus, using refugees they have trained as commandos, will soon be raiding German facilities and caravans for weapons and supplies, as well as killing known Nazi sympathizers in the region. At this time they had 23 members total, and their biggest worry was food. Before, the brothers had relied on kindly villagers to feed them, but now their numbers were growing, and starvation was not an option. There was a dilemma. If they continued to ask nearby villagers for food, there was only so much to be had. If they became forceful or asked for too much, those villagers, in order not to starve themselves, might turn them in. The brothers decided that fear and intimidation would have to be used to obtain food. They would need to get the word out or the impression out that they were a much larger resistance group than they were, and they would have to range further out of the immediate area. They would also have to strike fear in the minds of friend and foe alike, and they would have to make examples of those whom they knew were Nazi sympathizers. Some of those people had been friends and neighbors. These were just a few of the hard choices they were faced with. They began sending non-combatants on nighttime missions carrying long sticks over their shoulders, which in the dim moonlight looked like guns. They began circling through villages singing Russian songs. They threatened lives. They also recruited those they felt they could trust. Their biggest concern was the Jews still remaining alive at novogrudek Before they could make plans to rescue them, the Nazis, on August 7th, at 4 a.m. in the morning, herded all the Jews in the novogrudek ghetto out into the street, They ordered them to lie down. A few were shot. They were then loaded onto trucks and driven to a small village just north of a city called Litivka. Execution pits had already been dug. It was wide open. It was not forested. The Germans no longer needed a forest in which to do their killing. They did it right out in the open at the break of day. Some three to five thousand Jews were machine gunned to death. Their bodies were covered with chemical agents, followed by buckets of sand. The Nazis had been tipped off that more Jews had escaped to the courthouse in Novogrudik, and that many of these were children. These survivors, plus an equal-sized contingent of survivors remaining in the military barracks, those likely being women, were ordered to resume their labors. Altogether, there were about 600 Jews remaining alive out of about five to 6,000 originally. These were marched to the Parashika neighborhood where the first mass murder in Novogrudic had been committed. A Close partisan Gentile friend of Tuvia's was able to deliver a handwritten note from Tuvia to his nephew, who was one of the few Jews still remaining alive. His name was Yehuda, and the message offered him a way out. These arguments were voiced by those who had been asked to come with him. What if the Jewish police should catch us? What if our escape results in the death of everyone here? The final decision was, "We're going to die anyway. We can die trying to be free, or we can die here like trapped rats. It was a hard choice, but the only choice. After spending a few days studying the habits of the guards, who, for the most part, were Belarusian and Polish collaborators, they chose the right night to make their break. They broke three fence boards and climbed to a large hole. A guard was heading their way, but looking down, not up, and he made his turn without seeing them. They crawled across an open field and reached a small section of woods. Tuvia's close friend and neighbor, Koslovsky gave them food and water and told them that the Bielski brothers would be there soon. They generally checked in every few days, he said. Finally, the brothers came and took the escapees with them toward their forest camp. Along the way, the Bielski brothers argued over their new dilemma. This was the first time they had accepted non-relatives. How many more Jews could they accept? If their location became known, the Germans would simply follow the refugees to the camp and all would be slaughtered. And more refugees met a need for more food. Asail and Zeus made it clear to Tuvia that they only wanted young warriors to kill Nazis and to protect the camp. Tuvia said, No, we take everyone. Old, young, sick, man, woman, or child. We cannot turn them away. Upon arrival at the forest camp, Tuvia called a meeting. He told the refugees, We can't sit here and hide in the bushes and wait for the wolf to come to us. We must send people to the ghetto to save Jews. Many people murmured their disapproval. One man spoke up. We have lost our wives and children, and you want us to go back into the ghetto and bring out strangers? One man named Pesach Friedberg spoke up against that voice. What a shame that I picked you to come here. I tried to bring people who would respond to any call to help others. I will be the first to go. But Tuvia looked at him, and then at the rest of the refugees. He said, The first ones to go will be those who have refused to go. If they do not do it, they have no place here. We don't want them. If they don't have sense, this will teach them sense. From now on, this will be run like a military outfit. All of you will follow orders. A vote was then made to elect Tuvia as the camp's commander, and it was unanimous. As Sayel was second and Zeus was third in command. Groups were formed under Yehuda Bielski and Pesach Friedberg, whose purpose it was to head for Novogrutik and bring back anyone who would come. Back in the ghetto, the word was spreading about the Bielski brothers as well as Konstantin Kozlovski's way station. The debate to try to escape or not was raging in the ghettos. False rumors were started, informing people that the Bielskis would only take relatives. What began as a trickle of escapees soon became a flood, at least for a few weeks in late August, but the Germans soon got wind of the loss of inmates, and they clamped down. Working with a partisan Russian unit commanded by a young man named Viktor Penchekov, Tuvia and his fighters planned an ambush of a German supply convoy. The plan called for a young village girl to act as a spotter and tell the partisans when the last of the convoy was approaching. After the bulk of the convoy passed, two vehicles remained, the first being full of German officers, the second being filled with guns and supplies. The attackers opened up on the first vehicle, but it sped up and was able to escape unharmed. The second was not so lucky. Machine gun fire blew out the tires, and the driver was hit, causing the vehicle to stop. Several Germans as well as local police piled out of the back of the truck, but soon found they had no fixed targets, and they were outgunned. They ran into the woods. One of Bielski's fighters, Michael Lebowski, recalled that they took all the food and supplies they could carry on their shoulders. The two groups divided the spoils, which included machine guns, rifles, and hundreds of rounds of ammunition, along with barrels of fresh food. Now winter was approaching, and their camp numbered in the hundreds. The brothers now led a partisan group that was defying the might of the Nazis and winning. How long it could last, none of them knew, but they knew that for them at least there was hope for another day and the indescribable taste of freedom." We'll return to our story right after this sponsor message. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now, back to our story. The brothers were now faced with the job of preventing these refugees from freezing to death. They also had to devise a way to prevent them all from being attacked and wiped out. To answer these problems, they set up two additional forest camps in forest areas separated by a few miles. A man named Yehuda Levine, who was a carpenter, supervised the construction of earth and wood dugouts capable of holding up to 40 people. Two dugouts were built in each forest. The surface of the roofs of these structures were camouflaged with dirt, branches, and vegetation. The residents of the dugouts used a small ladder located at one end of the dugout. Inside were built wooden bunks with straw mattresses. Once these were built, a dugout hospital was built at a third location. Just as the brothers began to grow confident in what they had accomplished, the Germans launched a major forest offensive, the purpose of which was to rout out partisans, and while doing so, burn down homes and execute unarmed peasants. Within the Bielski camps, plans of escape were rehearsed. The Germans were shelling homes as well as any camps they could locate, and when the sound of cannon fire came too close, the brothers decided it was time to move. They had obtained horse-drawn carts from locals and used these to transport camp goods, and this process of moving from one potential camp to another, and sleeping now above ground in snow, was taking its toll on everyone, especially the aged. Within weeks the German offensive had ended, and the decision to move back to their original camps was made. Tuvia and about twelve of his men had found another dozen armed partisans who, after some long discussion, were willing to join Bielski's camp, Together they set out for the village of Abelkovich, stopping at the first home they came upon. They began asking questions, and were giving the name of an informer who had not been only giving away Jews' hiding places, but killing them as well. Half of the Bielski fighters entered the house wearing red armbands painted with black swastikas. Pesach Friedberg, after entering, asked the man how things were going. We're killing Jews, the man answered. Pesach agreed, asking the man to elaborate, which he did. "'I've nabbed plenty,' the man said. "'A few days ago I turned in two women, two men, and two children. "'I tied them up like sheep and kept them in the barn overnight. "'They nearly froze to death. "'Then I took them to the police station.' "'The man continued with more details, "'while his wife, now standing by his side, smiled and elaborated. "'Pesach asked him if he had any weapons. "'The man brought his weapons out of hiding. "'Tuvia asked him, "'How can a man with a conscience turn over people to be killed?' "'What do you mean?' said the man. "'It is the law. "'We have to obey the law.' "'Pesach asked, "'Do you know who I am?' "'No, who are you?' "'The man asked. "'I am a Jew,' answered Pesach, "'and then he slapped him in the face. "'They then ordered the man and his family "'to lie on the floor while they searched the house, "'finding clothing adorned with yellow stars. "'They then murdered the family, "'making sure to get the cat and dog as well, "'and then set fire to the house.' "'In front of the structure, two of you placed a large sign "'saying that this family had been executed "'for helping the Germans catch Jews, "'and that a similar fate would befall any who did the same. "'The Vilskis had become monsters just like the Nazis. "'But this was war. "'And in any war, you do what you have to do to survive. "'Hard choices have to be made. "'It is futile to try and judge most people's actions "'in the middle of a war for survival, "'especially when looking back into the past "'from a peaceful armchair.' There are so many mitigating circumstances involved in wartime, it boggles the mind. Jewish partisan soldiers killed anyone who threatened their existence. Germans killed brutally because they had succumbed to an indoctrination of hate, and, so they claimed, they were following orders. Russians killed, they said, to protect their homeland. Everyone in the middle who killed did so to save their families and homes from death and destruction. And it is possible that that family that the Bielskis murdered had not committed crimes, but pretended they did, as soon as Bielski's partisans, wearing Nazi armbands, entered their home. We'll never know. By the spring of 1943, the Bielski refugee camp had grown to 300 Jews split between two forest areas. More earth and wood dugouts had been built to shelter the growing community, which was one of the last places in Europe where Jews could live free. By mid-year of 1943, the Nazis had already exterminated about 80% of the 5 to 6 million Jews they were known to have murdered in World War II. Large fires were built just outside the shelters to warm frozen bodies and cook food, the staple diet being potatoes baked over coals. Large tubs rescued from vacant homes in the villages were used for cleaning laundry and preparing soup for hundreds. Outside the camps, the peasant farmers knew that if they were visited by members of the Bielski Brigade, they were risking their lives not to help and they could consider themselves dead if they informed. The son of an old Bielski family friend, his name Vacha Kuschel, was known to be working with the Nazis to inform on Jews, and went so far as to point out young Aaron on the streets of an occupied town while he was on a mission to free Jews. Aaron got away. Vacha was later captured by a few Bielski fighters and turned over to a sail as he was preparing to burn a bridge. A sail had him beheaded and thrown onto the bridge before it was set on fire. On February 15th of 1943, the Nazi-led police force was able to locate one of the Bielski camps by following the trail of some food carts. Mounted on sleighs, a detachment of Nazis numbering about 100 soldiers killed a perimeter guard, alerting a second guard in the process, who then fired warning shots to alert the camp. That second guard was soon spotted and killed. That camp was immediately evacuated, sending hundreds of people scurrying deeper into the woods. The second camp, a few miles away, heard the gunfire, and they moved to a deeper location in the woods as well. The police force moved into the vacant camp and destroyed everything, throwing hand grenades into the dugouts and stealing anything of value, which was basically horses and cattle. Later, the scattered members of that group were found and brought back to one of their older camps. It was terribly cold that day in the forest, so cold that their fire-heated soup froze before they could eat it. By mid-April of 1943, the Bielski camp numbered over 400 men, "'women and children, hundred of the men "'serving as armed warriors. "'They moved to a new base "'in the Starahuda Forest area "'and dug in, "'rebuilding a new camp "'which now began to resemble a village. "'Many were skilled tradesmen, "'serving as tailors, "'candlemakers, gunsmiths, "'teachers, doctors, "'and even barbers, "'men and women. "'But this settlement was short-lived. "'The Germans once again "'had discovered the camp's location "'and attacked. "'This time ten of the Bielski group "'were killed.' and the group had to leave almost everything behind. Tuvia now needed a safer place for his people, a promised land, where the large group could live together. He announced that they were moving to the Nalaboki Pushka. This was located about 30 miles outside of Novogrudik. It was an ancient forest filled with canals and swampland, which for centuries had been home to outlaws and rebels because of its difficulty in getting to, and once you were in it, its difficulty in getting around. You had to know how to survive it. Any approaching columns could be spotted early, and it could be well defended. The problem was that getting to it required a long trek through German occupied territory. Tuvia, astride his white horse, led the group of nearly 800, finding narrow sections of the river to cross, avoiding quicksand, and aligning the people in human chains while crossing the river so that none were swept away. Children were carried on shoulders. Food and weapons were now scarce, much having been lost or abandoned when their last camp was attacked. It took five days to reach the Pushka, and by the fourth day they were not seeing any farms or signs of human habitation. It was remote. They could hear wolves howling in the distance. They did encounter a Russian partisan unit, and that unit gave them what food they could spare. The northern part of the Pushka was in control of Russian partisans under the command of a man named Platon, who had been airdropped into that area to take command of 23 scattered Russian partisan groups. Tuvia and his group would now be occupying the southern part of the Pushkas, near Lake crowman The last thing Tuvia wanted was any conflict with the Russians, so he rode into the Russian camp to talk with Platon. He wanted to communicate to Platon the importance of his brigade's contribution to the partisan struggle against the Nazis, as well as register a complaint that small bands of Jewish partisans were being raided by Russians who were taking their weapons. This needed to end. Platon promised to look into this. The general warned Tuvia that a big attack was coming. Tuvia reminded him that his group was comprised mostly of non-combatants and the general assigned a Russian unit to him. On his way back to the new camp, Tuvy was depressed by his bad luck. The area he had chosen for safety was quickly becoming very dangerous. As soon as he arrived in camp, he assigned a large group of men to assist their new Russian counterparts in cutting down trees to slow any German advance. Foxholes were built on the edge of the forest and mines were placed on the roads. The Nazis were indeed coming with a major thrust. Plans had been put in place to wipe out all partisan groups, sparing no one. Anyone who supported them was marked for death. An SS Sonderkommando unit consisting of 900 men who had been released from German prisons to create death and mayhem was dispatched under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Oscar Derlewanger, a sadistic Nazi who truly enjoyed killing. On July 15th, they launched their attack, Using heavy machinery to push aside the trees blocking their way. The Bielski sent their non combatants deep into the forest and, with the help of 200 Russian partisans, set up an ambush. But the ambush was foiled when a partisan traitor alerted the Germans with a rifle shot. They jumped from their trucks fully armed and ready, and the partisans retreated into the forest, into the Pushka. In the days to come, the Nazi forces overwhelmed the tiny villages surrounding the Pushka, tightening the net around the area as partisan forces put up small but futile efforts to stop the well-armed Germans. As the Germans moved toward the Jews' camp, the Russians were fighting for every inch, and soon the battle was taking place within two miles of their new camp. A partisan commander rode into the Bielski camp, saying the Germans were closing in. That night two men who knew this section of forest well approached Tuvia with an idea. "'We know where to go,' said one, "'and how to get there. It's a difficult route.' "'but if we can get there, we have a chance of saving these people. "'They would have to take 800 people through the swamps to get there. Tuvia of you gathered the group and gave them the news. "'The enemy is very close,' he said, "'and we have to move deeper into the forest. "'We will be crossing very difficult ground, much of its swampland. "'Take all the food you can carry. "'We leave tonight.' "'They began their trek entering the swamp, the only sound they made being the sucking sound their feet left as they sank into and pulled away from the muck. Sometimes the water reached chest high. At midnight they all heard the sound of a loudspeaker in the distance. The words came first in Russian and then in Polish. You cannot fight a war against our tanks and cannons. When daylight comes, throw down your guns and surrender. At sunrise, Tuvia, Assail, and their guide, Mechlis. "'scouted back toward their camp to see where the Germans were located. "'They found them, close to the base they had deserted two days before. "'And they were spotted. "'They stayed low and moved as fast as they could "'back to the swamp to their people. "'They entered a portion of the swamp which was filled with high grasses, "'preventing anyone at ground level from seeing them. "'The odds of 800 people walking through a grassy swampland "'without being seen by German planes were high. "'But the planes were now up there, but they were not seen.' "'All day they trekked, reaching the forest "'just short of Krasnaya Gorka at nightfall. "'There they collapsed, "'exhausted and starving. "'A week passed with the Germans still "'surrounding them, and the group was "'hungrier still. Zeus took eighty men on a mission "'to break through the German lines and secure food. "'He had decided he would head back to "'Stankovich. He instructed the remaining group "'that if one of his people did not return in two days "'they should follow by the same route "'which he laid out on a map for them. "'It was a risky plan.' because his not returning could also mean that he had fallen into a trap and been killed. Two days passed, and he did not return. The Bielski group split up into units of about twenty people, each led by an experienced warrior. The last group to leave was Tuvia's, and he was accompanied by a sale. They came across discarded Nazi items, but no Nazis. It looked like they had pulled out. For two weeks, these groups somehow eluded the Nazis, and somehow made it back to Stankovic. By the end of August, Tuvia had rounded up nearly all of the 800-member Forest Clan. Their food situation had not greatly improved, as the remaining peasants were few, and the Nazis had scoured the area. In the fall of 1943, the Russian commander for the region ordered the Bielski group to split, and Tuvia, Zeus, and Asail were given no choice. For the survival of all, they had been forced to align with the Russians and put themselves under their command. One group under a Jew named Kessler had stayed back in the Pushka managing to evade the Nazis and building a strong base camp. The Russian commander ordered that the Bielskis organize a combatant group in the forest outside Stankovitch where they had begun to be commanded by a Russian partisan commander with Zeus as deputy commander. A non-combatant unit made up of women, children and non-fighters would be re-established in the Daboli Pushka, the northern half of the Pushka, through which they had fled earlier that year and in which Kessler and his group were located. This group would be led by Tuvia. A sail was sent to Sergei Vasilyev's brigade to serve in reconnaissance. All this greatly bothered Tuvia, who felt that his greatest strength was in unity, and now the Russians were breaking the brothers up. And with the Soviets in control, his goal of saving Jewish lives was out the window. To add insult to injury, Tuvia was given only five days to split up the groups and relocate them. He was able to convince a large number of his warriors to stay with the non-combatant group for their protection. Zeus was actually okay with the split, believing that there had been a number of instances where they could not counterattack or properly defend the entire group due to the large number of non-combatants who were present. Just after reaching the forest outside of his hometown of Stankovic in October of 1943, Tuvia's group was turned around. On the way, he obtained all the tools and equipment he could from local peasants and set about to rebuild a much larger camp. When work got underway, he spent weeks traveling through the region trying to locate stray groups of Jewish survivors, which he did, sending them to his camp. They all had stories of survival. Some had jumped off trucks headed for execution sites. Some had escaped from the ghettos. Some had hidden out in sympathizers' homes until they were forced to leave. At the new base camp in the Pushka, work progressed at a rapid pace as the winter approached. New dugouts, which could accommodate up to 50 people, were built. Abandoned homes and villages were scoured for any items that could help. As it all came together, Tuvia's mood improved as he realized that the Germans, having to shift their attention more and more to the fighting fronts, were no longer able to mass large attack groups in the Push region. Asail, who had been assigned with the protection of the command post of Soviet partisans, was chafing at not being able to help his brothers or command attack troops. Finally, he deserted Vasilyev's command and traveled back to join Tuvia in the Pushka. Tuvia, as well as Asail's wife Haya, was overjoyed to see him, but also wary of what the Russian retaliation would be for disobeying orders. That camp in the Pushka, which contained a number of skilled craftsmen, grew into a functioning village, offering a smokehouse, two medical facilities, and scores of workshops, one containing 18 tailors. Then there were seamstresses and shoemakers, leather workers and gunsmiths, tanneries and forges. There was a school and a synagogue, as well as a jail. Russian partisans would come to the camp and join in, as well as provide entertainment. For the first time in years, these forest Jews felt a glimmer of chance that they just might survive after all. By late 43, early 44, the situation outside the two forest camps was changing, and it was hard to tell then if it was for better or for worse. There were anti-Soviet Polish partisan units appearing around Novogrudek and Lida. These worked under the mantle of the Home Army, and these Polish partisan units were blatantly anti-Jewish. They were called the White Poles. Their general, Boer Komarowski, had issued an order for the killing of all partisan Jews, which he regarded as bandits. The Germans offered them weapons and medical care. Add to the White Poles the arrival of thousands of pro-German Cossacks who had fled from their homes in the Caucasus after the Red Army victories over the German Wehrmacht troops. The Nazis supported them as well with weapons, ammunition, and medical care. And then came the Belarusian soldiers under the command of Boris Ragula. He was a Nazi collaborator from Novogrudek. He was given a 150-man unit dressed in Nazi uniforms and told to kill as many Jews and Russians as he could find. The Nazis were unleashing the hounds of hell on Belarus, but as bad as it all was, word was still getting around that they were getting their butts kicked on the Russian front. By the late winter, early spring of 1944, the Pushka camp, with the help of the Russians, completed the construction of an airstrip, which went a long way to helping bring food, medicine, and fighters, as well as weapons. With these weapons came orders to send groups of fighting men into the thick of it, carrying food and weapons to Zeus's camp near Stankovich and carrying out more attacks and raids. A sail led one of the commando units and he was kept constantly busy. They blew up tracks using mines, raided Nazi storage units and ambushed enemy patrols and enemies were not hard to find. The only thing that was hard to find in Belarus was Jews. The Nazis had killed most of them off. Millions of them. Tuvia and Assail had their own headaches with dissension in the Pushka camp, which was being caused by Kessler, whom you remember as being the commander who stayed behind during the last mass exit of Tuvia's people. Kessler still ran his own camp a few miles from Tuvia's, and he began constantly complaining to the Soviets, who oversaw both operations, that Tuvia wasn't handling things right. It appeared that Kessler wanted control of Tuvia's camp and people. After Kessler returned from a meeting with the Soviet general, Tuvia had him placed in jail. Soon after, a sail shot him, killing him instantly. After years of dealing with spies, informers, and agitators, they had no patience left. On May Day of 1944, everyone gathered in the Pushka to celebrate the fact that they were alive and thriving. Tuvia, holding a message from the Soviet government, announced that the Red Army had taken the Caucasus and that the Germans were retreating. The war will soon reach the German heartland, he announced, and the Nazi monster will finally be crushed. But they are not done killing, and we must expect hard days ahead. We must prepare. And Zeus, at his camp, was busy fighting Cossacks, White Poles, and Nazis. In May he led an ambush that killed eight Cossacks. By the end of May he was seeing large convoys of German vehicles retreating toward the German Reich. On June 6, 1944, the Allies launched Operation Overlord, the D-Day invasion of Normandy diverting tens of thousands of German troops to the front in France. On June 22nd, the Red Army launched Operation Bagration against the German forces still in Belarus. In the Pushka, the Jewish camp could hear the sounds of battle, constant rumbling explosions that told them that the Red Army had opened up on the Germans. A meeting of partisans was held at the edge of the Pushka. A Soviet messenger arrived and announced that a large German force had been surrounded at Minsk. He went on to say that they would try to break out of the trap in small groups which would be headed through the Pushka, and it would be the camp warriors' job to destroy them. The men then hurriedly dug trenches, built machine-gun nests, and waited for the arrival of the Nazis. Within two days, small units of Germans began to appear, and when the Jews opened fire, they tried to surrender, but their own commander shot them and then turned his own gun on himself. Soon other Germans appeared, and more surrendered. In one situation, the temptation to kill them all was great among the Jewish partisans, but they relented and took prisoner those who surrendered. Most Germans, however, preferred to die fighting. In other situations, German prisoners were brought into camps where furious mobs confronted them. They were spat on, beaten, struck with large sticks, then thrown into large pits where they were shot. Too many of these forest people had had their relatives killed by Nazis. And forgiveness not only didn't come easy... It wasn't there at all for many of them. On July 9th, early in the morning, a large group of Germans numbering about 200 broke through the outer defensive lines and ran toward the Bielski camp, which now contained mostly unarmed people. They opened fire on the perimeter guards and ran straight toward the dugouts. The camp residents climbed out as they approached, the Germans being only 100 yards away and coming fast, and immediately Tuvia, arriving on horseback, and knowing that the residents couldn't take on a 200-man armed force, ordered them to flee, which they tried to do, creating total bedlam in the camp. The Nazis arrived on the run, throwing grenades into dugouts and spraying machine gun fire, killing about a dozen partisans, men and women. Armed partisans began arriving in camp, and firefights broke out between the Germans and the partisans. Half a dozen Nazis had been killed. The rest ran. Soon after that, news quickly reached the camp that the Red Army had defeated the Germans the Pushka camp people ran to the nearest roads and greeted columns of Red Army soldiers who were marching after the retreating German forces. One shouted, The war is over. You can go home. Most of them had no homes to go back to, but the message wasn't lost on them. They wept for joy. The following morning, after all they owned had been packed on horses and carts, the entire group gathered in the square. Each person, by orders, carried only a small bag of belongings, and each person listened and watched as Tuvia spoke to them for the last time. My brothers and sisters, we have faced some very hard times together. We have been attacked and blockaded. We have been cold and hungry. We have been in constant fear for our lives. Now we are going to tell the world that we, a tiny remnant of people, have been struggling to save ourselves and our tortured brethren. We are witnesses to what Hitler and his murderers have done. We will bear witness to the murder and destruction to the suffering that the Nazis brought upon the Jewish people. The convoy started the long walk to Novogrudnik. The line of people stretched for nearly a mile. Despite strict orders to take only their personal belongings, there was one man who had piled his cart high with goods and supplies. Tuvia approached him on horseback. Tuvia asked him why he was defying orders. The man cursed at him and said in a defiant tone, "'We are liberated, and you are not my commander any Tuvia's face lit up with rage. He pulled his gun and shot him dead. When he gave this story later in 1946, Tuvia said he shot the man without hesitation. Those familiar with the story, especially the camp survivors, have been divided on that action for years. But everyone who survived that ordeal admitted that they owed their lives to Tuvia and his brothers for their courage and leadership. These were hard men who had to make hard choices, I'll leave it to you to cope with the morality and fairness of it all. War changes everything. As the long line of Jewish refugees passed through tiny villages, the people came out of the homes to stare at them. Some asked, How did you survive? Where were you? Are you ghosts? The war was over. The Bilski brothers were given jobs in the new Soviet government, and the three brothers and their wives moved into the same building in Lita. Tuvia was given a job with the electric utility responsible for bringing power back to Lita. Zeus was given the job of procuring meat and grain for the military, while a sailor was put to work creating a cafeteria for partisans and soldiers remaining in the area. You can almost guess how well they were able to adjust to civilian life, which was complete with Stalinization of all things. Young Aaron was sent to school. He had no wife. Obviously he had no friends. And for him, it was extremely tough. Both Tuvia and Zeus were ordered to Minsk to report on their activities during the war. Tuvia reported that 60 children survived in his camp, 200 people staffed workshops, and 20% of the population was female. His troops had destroyed 34 train cars, 18 bridges, and 18 German-run farm supply buildings. 261 enemy fighters were killed. Close to 50 members of his Jewish unit were killed fighting. Zeus's group had killed 120 enemy fighters, destroyed two locomotives, 23 train cars, and four bridges. Zeus personally killed 14 Nazis, 17 policemen, and 33 pro-Nazi spies and agents. Both Zeus and Tuvia, leaving the meeting, agreed to leave the country as soon as they could. sale was called to serve in the Red Army, and he was killed in the siege of Konigsberg. His pregnant wife, Haya, after being told that her husband was dead, stowed away on a train that would take her part of the way toward her eventual destination, Palestine. She and her baby were stowaways on that train, which took them to the heart of a very devastated Europe. She and her baby found a hiding place in a cattle car with pigs, and when the police checked the car, she kicked the pigs, which all began squealing, covering up the sounds of her baby's crying. She finally did make it to Palestine. Tuvia and Zeus made it to Jerusalem, where Tuvia managed a small store, and Zeus drove a truck. They and their wives lived in the Tel Aviv suburb of Ramat Gan, when neighboring Arab countries invaded the state of Israel in 1948, they both, along with now 18-year-old Aaron, volunteered for service. After Israel won the war, they worked with a professional writer who recorded their wartime experiences from both wars. They took to driving cabs, and by the mid-50s they had moved to New York City and were living in the Midwood section of Brooklyn. Tuvia and Zeus each had three children and lived to see their sons star in high school football. Tuvia worked as a truck driver in New York for his older brother Walter who had come to the U.S. before the war. Tuvia's son Michael would later say, "'I saw my father at age 70 pick up drums from the truck, 20 or 30 at a time, and load and unload them. It would kill me inside to see him doing this kind of work. When Tuvia died in 1987, he was nearly penniless. He was buried with military honors in Jerusalem.'" Zeus opened a gas station on Kent Avenue in the shadow of the Williamsburg Bridge in New York City. Later he sold the station to buy a trucking company on nearby Roebling Street. Zeus's son, Zvi remembered seeing his father watching his high school football practice. "'When I came home,' Zwei said, I asked him what he thought. He said, "'I never felt so proud. I'm glad I came to America.' At his death, Zeus grabbed Zwei's hand and said, "'Remember what I did in the war with my brothers.' And Zwei did, and he has shared that at many a conference and reunion." The survivors and the families of the camp survivors still get together for meetings to rehash those very hard times. There are hundreds of stories, but perhaps this one tells it best. Charles Bedsoe was 17 when he escaped from a ghetto in Lita to join the Bielski Brigade. He said, It was heaven. We fought the Nazis, and we were equal, and we found a place where we survived. We were a Jewish brigade, and the Germans couldn't take us down. At age 70, Aaron Bielski, who changed his name to Aaron Bell, was the only surviving son of David and Bilya Bielski. He was heard to say, Most of the brothers were very tough individuals when they were in their teenage years. The neighbors were already afraid of them. As much as they wanted to beat up a Jew, they wouldn't touch my family. Throughout this part too, which I think was appropriately titled Hard Choices, we've seen that the Bielski brothers had no hesitation in killing those whom they believed constituted a threat to them. They did not leave many friends in Poland, which was and is strictly anti-communist. The movie created a storm of controversy, and we'll discuss that, along with the making of the movie Defiance, right after this sponsor message. The filming for Defiance began in September of 2007 in Lithuania, and it went into general release in January-February of 2009. It is available today on Netflix and YouTube, for starters. I watched it, and it's a well-made, well-acted movie. The only criticisms come from some historians who believe that the Bielskis committed a number of atrocities and that the film tends to whitewash these. We'll get to that here soon. The Hollywood Reporter wrote, The Ed Zwick-directed World War II resistance movie revolves around three Jewish Belarusian brothers who fought the Nazis and built a community in the Naliboki Forest outside of Novogrudek. For political reasons, Zwick and his crew did not go to Belarus. President Alexander Lukashenko is accused by the West of ruling the country with an iron grip, jailing opponents, shutting down independent media, and rigging polls, including his own re-election to a third term in 2006. But the filmmakers found the next best thing in neighboring Lithuania, where the entire movie was shot. Not only that, but the movie was filmed almost entirely in the forest, with hardly any stage work at all, and the forest there is very similar to that of Belarus. The production was based in Lithuania's capital, Vilnius, only 90 to 120 miles from where the actual story took place. The filmmakers found locations within an hour's drive of the city. The forests are the same, and the swamps are the same. It's the same geography, Zwick was quoted to have said. Lithuania's Vilnius had a Jewish quarter that was decimated during World War II and had mass graves in the forest that are now memorial sites. Shooting in and around Vilnius also allowed Slavic actors to be cast in smaller, Russian-speaking roles, and made it possible to cast extras who were descendants from the families that the brothers saved. Shooting in the forest was no walk in the park. The actors and the crew drove to the outskirts of the woods, but had to hike into the actual set. Fall had settled in. The movie was shot between August and December of that year, which meant cold, wet, gray weather, and low light. The rain and the cold added realism to the film. When you saw people half-freezing out there and looking sick and tired, they likely were. There was real snow in the forest, but more was added in scenes that required it. When you are under these adverse circumstances, people tend to bond, and this is a movie that's about community, Zwick said. We formed our own community. The conditions also kept the actors and crew members humble. Jean Brugge says that they arrived at the base camp in the morning, lived in the forest for the day, and then went back to the hotel. But those who lived through this did not, he says. We have on parkas, and we have a catering truck, and so you are always thinking of what it was for these people to survive for all those years, not days, under those circumstances. Zwick began writing the script for Defiance in 1999, after he acquired the film rights to Nachama Tech's book titled, Defiance, the Bielski Partisans. By the way, Zwick's production company was called the Bedford Falls Company. Some of you 1001 fans might remember the interview and show we did around the movie It's a Wonderful Life, which was set in the fictional town of Bedford Falls. The Times and The Guardian reported that in Poland, the, the Poles fear that quote, "...Hollywood has airbrushed out some unpleasant episodes from the story, such as the Bielski Artisan's affiliation with those Soviet partisans directed by the NKVD who committed atrocities against Jews in eastern Poland, including the region in which the Bielskis operated." The Polish Gazeta Iborska reported six months before the film's release that news about the movie glorifying the Bielskis has caused an uproar among Polish historians who referred to the Bielskis as Jewish communist bandits and said that the movie departed from the truth on several occasions. As you might expect, some of that criticism was answered with charges of anti-Semitism. It's not even a guess to say that during the very long wars that occurred in that region, the dividing line between good and bad, moral and immoral, and right and wrong, were more blurred than clear. The goal in trying to survive is to fight all enemies, foreign and domestic. Zwick responded to the criticism by saying, Defiance was not a simple fight between good and evil. He told the Times that the Bielskis weren't saints. They were flawed heroes, which is what makes them so real and so fascinating. They faced any number of difficult moral dilemmas that the movie seeks to dramatize. He left us with the question, Does one have to become a monster to fight monsters? Does one have to sacrifice his humanity to save humanity? You listeners can chew on that one for a while. It's a good question. Meanwhile, we've got more stories to write about at 1001. Thank you very much for joining us for this story, Defiance, the incredible true story of the Bielski brothers in World War II. We do appreciate reviews very much, and most of them do come through Apple, so if you have sent us a review or can send us a review, thank you. It helps new listeners find us. Also, please check us out at Patreon P A T R E O N forward slash one thousand one stories network, where very generous supporters support us going forward every month, for about the price of a cup of blended coffee, the ultimate goal being to reach two thousand podcasts. We just passed one thousand total podcasts for one thousand one stories network last month, and our eyes are fixed on the new goal of two thousand. It may take us four or five years, but we'll get there. Meanwhile, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for sharing our show with others. Thanks for letting other people know about it, and talking about some of our stories. And don't forget to check out our other shows, 1,001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1,001 Stories for the Road, 1,001 Greatest Love Stories, 1,001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, and 1,001 Sherlock Holmes Stories. That's it for today, everyone. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe. We'll be back soon.